Hey everyone, this is Stefan Miller and welcome to The Forever Student. Thank you all so much for joining us today. I am so grateful that you've taken the time out of your day and dedicated it to join us and to become a better version of yourself. Today, we've got a very special guest and someone that I can't wait for you to meet. She is someone I'm so happy to have on the show. She's a New Zealander with over 40 years of experience as a counselor and psychotherapist. She's also the founder of Mindful Me, which is something we'll speak about more today. And she's also a teacher of mindfulness, meditation practices, and mindful living. We're going to talk all about those things, as well as mental health issues and how to deal with them, uh, building self-awareness, and finding your purpose. We are so blessed to have you on the show today. Helen Williams, welcome. Thank you very much. What a lovely introduction. Thank you. I, I worked quite hard on that one. <laughs> uh, it's, it's such an honor to have you on the show today. We, we spoke a couple of weeks ago, and I'm, I'm fascinated by your story. Um, could you first explain to us what mindfulness is exactly, and then share how you got into uh, the area of mindfulness and how you've stayed in it for such a long time? Well, nowadays, the word mindfulness means quite different things than it did when I first learned about it. So mindfulness is the practice of staying present, choosing how to be present in the moment, how to pay attention, how to not judge what is happening, but to learn how to see what your thoughts are doing, to understand what your feelings are telling you. It's really a practice of awareness, and it's a way of living. But it comes from Buddhist practice from many years ago. Mm. So I, I'm a teacher of it now. I have been for many years. But when I'm teaching a mindfulness workshop, I'm always curious about how I'm going to introduce why I do this. And it often depends on who's present how I say it. But I think the real truth is that my mother taught it to me. And that's a very unusual and interesting thing to say nowadays, long before mindfulness was a practice. Mm. I think I grew up on a farm in New Zealand, and I think my mother um, tried to keep us present. She helped us in particular to have a very long attention span by allowing us to play for long periods of time un uninterrupted. And she often would question us, what are you noticing? What do you see? What can you hear? What is happening at the moment? And these are the ways that we teach people to become into the moment. So an, an interesting way I could explain it is that she died when I was young. And I believe in the last year that she was alive, she taught me how to cope with the feelings of grief later on. She taught me by showing me how to stay present in her illness and by helping me to grow my awareness, by teaching me that after she died, which she quite often referred to, everything that I needed would be inside of me if I learned how to search there for the answers. That's beautiful. I think that that's actually something that um, I've, I've witnessed quite a few times now as well, where what will happen to you if you lose something, uh, whether that's a person, whether that's a possession, um, whether that's a job, whether it's anything else, how can you then bounce back from that um, and not rely on external circumstances, but rather rely on what's inside of you? Mm. Um, but so was it coined mindfulness back then as well, or no. was it called something? No. Was there a term for it to begin well, with? Well, I believe it's a practicing presence. 
Okay. And in many ways, Dr. John Cabotson arrived with the the practice of the teaching of it in the 70s. But from my understanding, it's always been a Buddhist construct. Mm. Learning how to stay present to what's actually happening. And in all of the um, great religions, there's a basis to it, a founding there, in, in the stopping to pray, in the contemplation methods, in the understanding of meditation practices. So that was my background. But I've I've had a really interesting life. I lived in different situations and times, made countless appalling mistakes, um, been hurt and hurt others, and learned all the time while I was doing that how to keep coming back to this deep place inside of myself. So for a long time, I taught workshops to people based on the concepts of Christianity because that was my background growing up. And, and over time, I studied at university and I became really interested in all of the great faiths and ways of being till I came to see that Buddhist practice is a way of life. And for me, mindfulness practice actually mostly sits for me there. It, mindfulness is a way of learning to live, of learning how to stay present to what's actually happening. And how, how would you... How would you recommend or, or kind of what sort of advice could you give for someone to uh, to be more mindful and or to become more present? Because I think we're in a generation today where one, there's a tremendous amount of distraction, even you know by our specific circles or maybe even our parents, um, on how to become and stay mindful and present. Do you have any any sort of advice on how to get there? How to get there. Yeah. Well, it's interesting here in Dubai nowadays, people come wanting to learn. Um, mm. And so we don't have to search for them. They, they arrive all the time and they're looking for exactly the reasons you said. The greatest distraction nowadays, of course, is screens yeah. and, and mostly people's phones, but also tremendous busyness all the time. So people just never stop. And what I've come to recognize, oddly enough, is I feel as though I'm teaching children how to live my childhood. The, the, the notions of having space and time, spaciousness and clarity and emptiness and learning how to sit into greater moments of peacefulness. This is what the practice of mindful meditation is about. And that's what people want. They have a yearning for it. We're all full all the time. So I often suggest to people that let's use the technology that we've got. I love my iPhone. I love my iPad. Let's use this and let me show you how to do an emptying out. So how I originally begin to teach mindfulness is often to show people, if you take your iPhone, double-click it, it opens up all the programs that you've got running on it still. Have I explained that clearly? You, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah 100%. Yes, you know what I mean? Yeah. So then, then you can choose how to just flick them all away till eventually they're all gone and you're back with a clear screen again. And I often say to people, mindfulness practice is like that. If we could learn to see all the programs that we have running in the background, like we were a laptop with all of the programs we have running open, all of the folders, what do you call those? Um, the tabs. The tabs. Yeah. So many of them running open at the bottom. Yeah. If we learned to click them off, we'd have much more space. So we're trying to let go a lot of the background programs that we have running all the time and bring our focus back to just what is here now. 
and learn how to find some peacefulness in it. The first thing that we normally teach people during week one of mindfulness practice is just let's be quiet. I'll time you. And this is how I suggest it. For a minute, I say, we're going to keep silence. What I want you to do is just watch your breathing. So just breathe in and out through your nose. And I'm going to give you a task. I'll time the minute. And for one minute, I say, I want you to listen deeply to all the sounds you can hear in the silence. See how many sit underneath each other and count them. At the end of a minute, I'm going to ask you what number you got to, counting the sounds, and to give me one word that explains your experience of doing that. So then for a whole minute, I say we begin now. We're in a very quiet setting. Because in Dubai, everything has double glazing, you can be quite quiet. Mm. And so the first thing you can hear is the air conditioning and then any other electric things, and a bang and a tap, and if you're lucky, a bird. Mostly it's construction noise, maybe a lift well. And, and then I say, people, a minute is finished. I'm going to ask each of you, can you tell me your number and give me one word that explains it? So this is commonly what happens. Pick a number between one and ten. A lot of people say, I only heard two sounds, and someone might say, I heard twelve. It's really interesting. Mostly we sit at about six, seven, or eight. But the word that people use to describe the practice of that is calm, peaceful, here, quiet, no thinking. Yeah, calm. That's the word that most people say. Yeah, calm. So when I ask, why do you think you're experiencing this calmness now? They tell me this. Because you gave us a task to do, counting, I wasn't thinking. Mm. And so the peacefulness arrived because all of my concentration was focused on, I've got to, I'm either competing, you know, what happens if I don't get enough? And so I'm concentrating so hard, I stop paying attention to my mind. And what I notice is that's incredibly still and peaceful. But so for many of our practitioners in the class, that's their first experience. I think that's a really good experience because what I've often, so I meditate um, every day uh, in the morning, especially. And, um, and I encourage everyone around me to, to give it a try as well. Mm. But I think the first thing that people struggle with is that when they're supposed to sit quietly uh, and focus on their breath, for instance, they still get very distracted. Mm. But I think if you give them a task such as counting and you're just focusing on that one thing, it really starts building your uh, concentration, but it also really builds your presence. Mm. Um, so that's a really, really good step. Are there any other sort of steps that I think meditation would obviously be uh, a very good one too? So I don't begin by saying we're going to do meditation mm. because for many people, that feels like an unknowable and an undoable. So instead we talk about Focusing on trying to be present. And so one of the things we often ask people, uh, out of 100%, what percentage of you is actually present here at the moment? And so I'm going to ask each of you around the room, I say. The very first person usually says, oh, 
because it's a weird question, like, what do you mean what percentage? And they'll usually cotton on to a, oh, 70, 70%. So then the next person says, no, 80. And then, no, 70. And someone will say, oh, 65. Mm. And then someone, you notice the look on their face, will say, gosh, no, for me, oh, 50, <laughs> if I'm lucky. And then others, so we're looking at usually 15 to 25 people, will say, no, 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 for me, it's definitely 80. And someone who comes quite a lot might say, no, no, I, I'm 90, 95, I'm here. And then I ask people, so you're here. Some of you is here. Where is the piece of you that isn't? What is the piece of you that isn't here? And then we have a discussion about, well, it's my mind, of course. My body is here. I want to be here. A piece of me is here, but a great deal of me is somewhere else. And now we have the discussion about where is that? And, of course, we end up with if it isn't here, it's in the past or it's in the future. So then I ask again around the room. So if you were to look at past or future, what are you? Are you have you gone backwards or have you gone forwards? Most people, honestly, what do you think they'd say? I think most people look into the past. Most people actually look into the future. Okay, which is, I suppose, where something like anxiety would come from. Yes. So, so I'm looking to be safe all the time, constantly planning ahead. So the rest of the people will say, no, I go backwards. I'm looking at what I've done wrong, what I should have done, you know, blaming and shaming myself. And several people will say, no, I'm all over the place. I, I'm in the past, in the future, <laughs> then I'm here. And then, but most people say I'm not here. I can see I'm not here. And then they begin to look at how much of you is here now. Then we'll do another breathing practice, like the one I suggested. We might practice doing counted breathing which is an interesting mindfulness practice to do, and ask people again, now tell me this, what percentage of you is here now and what number would you give? And everyone immediately says, oh, no, I'm, look, gosh, I'm 75 or 80 now. No, I'm 95% here. Now I can see, while I was doing the breathing practice, I can see how often my mind mm. took me out the door. And you lose count. So then we can begin to talk about uh, what meditating is. Once you understand what your mind does when you begin to see what it's doing. Are there specific thoughts that you might be aware of where people's minds wander to? Like are, are there kind of the, uh, the top two or top three warriors or, or thoughts that people have when, they, when their mind wanders? It usually um, self-blame, self-shame, self-recrimination. And I think... That's one of the things that surprises people a lot. If you're sitting in a group of 20 people, it feels quite surprising to hear them all say, well, they're surprised by each other to hear themselves say, gosh, I, I have no idea how many times I think, what an idiot I am. Gosh, I'm stupid. You probably think I look ridiculous. I wish I hadn't worn this. I'm probably not sitting up properly. I'm, and they're all shaming, blaming, I'm doing something wrong. Thoughts. So how would you then start practicing self-love instead of self-hate? Uh, how would you kind of start that process, especially for listeners out there who, who might have these thoughts? And I think that, you know, a lot of people um, have these thoughts on a daily basis. It's more than a lot. It's part of our common humanity. That, that first of all, we think I'm it, doing something wrong or there's something wrong with me. Is this something new or is this something that's been around for? It's always been like that. And how would you then go about 
what would kind of be the first step of saying, you know what, from today, I'm going to practice self-love or positive self-talk? Or Well, first of all, you'd have to wake up to discovering what your mind is doing all the time. How it's you're actually thinking, it's the thoughts that you're having that are hurting you. So the practices of mindfulness help us to notice, gosh, my mind is full of thinking. My thoughts are hurting my body a great deal. So as you learn to practice different small seated practices, you learn to see that I am sitting here watching what I'm thinking. And when I learn that I can see what my thinking is doing, then I can say to myself, gosh, worrying. Goodness anxiety oh, sadness. And I learn to just notice that it's there, not shame and blame, bring my attention back to just breathing again and allow it. So the practice of self-loving really begins with the awareness that my mind is what's hurting me and the gentle, open acceptance of this is part of who I am, not trying to get rid of it, not blaming myself and certainly not trying to outthink it by thinking something else instead. That would keep you trapped in your thinking mind. It. Yeah. Right. But just to notice, gosh, no wonder I feel so sad. I'm constantly thinking sad thoughts. So the practice of self-love is, starts first of all with the recognition of awareness of thinking and, and then, then the growth after that of self-acceptance which eventually becomes, as you continue to practice, compassionate, kind, self-awareness, which a lot of people would call self-care, and which I would call the journey of self-kindness. After all, another word for mindfulness is kindness, compassion, care, non-judgment of myself, acceptance. All of those words are mindfulness. I think it's... um... I think it's quite a journey to become self-aware. And I think that there's also quite a few people who are self-aware, but then still struggle with these specific issues that you just mentioned, because I think that then becomes the growth part uh, where you you jump into that next phase. Uh, Do you have any sort of practices or advice for those that have passed stage one, which is that they've become self-aware, they are now recognizing their thoughts. But they struggle to then move on to step two, which is really dealing with uh, negative thoughts or negativity in their lives. So it's a lovely question. One of the things that I've done over many years of teaching mindfulness practice is to suggest that people come, book and pay for a course and attend it. And after that, they're free to come for free as many times as they want to, the notion being that we build community. Because I believe, although we do these practices daily with ourselves, sitting in community and recognising it's part of our common humanity, is that it's tough. So once you accept the Buddhist concept of life is suffering, it's tough, and, and actually we all experience difficult things, and we become aware of that, then the next growth area we call practicing presence, which means sharing with others on a regular basis how the the strategies that I use or the attempts I have every day to stay as present as I possibly can. It's impossible to be present all the time. 
But once you learn how to breathe into the practice, pull yourself into the present moment as often as your attention to your breathing allows, you notice that it's much easier to stay there. You struggle less. Calmness becomes part of who you are. And presence of yourself in the present moment becomes more noticeable. So first of all, it's growing the awareness, and then it's practicing the awareness. I would say that the only way to really harness it is to sit into a seated meditation practice deeper than a mindfulness practice every morning. How to start your day. You begin it with mindful awareness, and then throughout the day, you keep coming back to yourself all the time. Yeah, I think... uh... To that point, I think that's amazing advice because this is something that I've really done my best to integrate into my own life, especially the uh, the morning meditation. I I usually do about 20 minutes um, as soon as I wake up. And I also go about setting my intentions for the day and doing gratitude practices and, and mindfulness practices. And I think you know, I've, I've, I've really realized that whenever I skip that or I miss that for whatever reason... I all of a sudden become so much less present mm-hmm. throughout my day um, and just less intentional about whatever I might be doing and less focused on uh, on those specific things. I like to think about it like an iPad, you see. So I think this is my practice every day. I love my iPad. If I didn't connect it and plug it in, it, it would just go completely flat and it would produce nothing. So I think about me being like an iPad. When I sit on my meditation seated practice, I'm plugging into deeper consciousness, which is available for all of us. We're making that connection. And while I sit there and allow the connection to charge me, the more often I sit, more regularly over the years, the more I need that connection, not the less, the more I need it. And then I often think to myself, The practice of recharging in my meditation is deepening and opening a great space inside of me, which in recent years I've come to see allows for the downloading of all that's present in the iCloud. Mm. I often think (laughs) that's what consciousness is. If I make a big enough space inside of me, I can download what I need. It's there. I don't have to stay up here in my cluttered mind. I just have to open a space inside of me, and then whatever I require will just arrive. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's actually a great comparison. I like how you're using like the most relevant comparison of technology. So for everyone out there, like get rid of your tabs every evening or every morning and recharge the battery uh, so to, to get ready for a full day. And so have the consciousness that there's nothing new under the sun. I'm really aware of that now. You know, on my next birthday, I'm 70. I think it's really worth um, celebrating that, I've decided. But I recognize this more and more. There is nothing new. Everything's been done before. Don't need to reinvent the wheel. So I don't need to keep on opening more tabs and calibrating information. It's all there. All I have to do is make a receptive open space inside of myself and trust. Anything I need will arrive in a minute if I'm present to it. And that my experience is that it does. That's great advice. I want to kind of um, go into a different direction because we haven't spoken about mindful me yet. Um, this is something you started how many years ago? 
Well, I've been living in Dubai now since 2006. But mine for me is only coming up three years old. Could you talk a little bit more about what Mindful Me does and who it's for? Well, Mindful Me is for the community. I think we began um, with the notion that awareness and consciousness is the pathway nowadays through life. And in community, it becomes much more possible. We can reach out to each other and make spaces we think of as safe and open. So on a regular basis, we invite people to come and take part in what we call mindful living sessions, which I pick a sentence or someone else on my team will pick a word or a sentence that we'd like to investigate. For instance, this coming Sunday, we're going to look at the notion of the gift of stubbornness. Good one. Uh, We're going to do uh, procrastination later in, after the summer break, we recently looked at what is the difference between self-esteem and self-worth. Um, we look at interesting topics like that every second Sunday night from seven to nine for two hours. The notion being that you come, sit in a safe place, and we say this is what the topic is. There's no guidance on it. This is what the topic is. And then we ask each person in the room to be a teacher. And, and to speak to it. So it doesn't matter how many people are there. It could be quite a big group. It could be quite small. People will share their knowledge and understanding, their experience. And we, of course, all grow hugely from it. So Mindful Living is on a Sunday night. We teach mindfulness practice every Monday. We run other workshops. There's workshops as part of my heart. Okay. That's been what I've been doing as a psychotherapist. I ran my first workshop, I think, when I was about 17. We had this conversation, that's right. Talking about death, because that was my experience growing up. And I've run a lot of workshops about the notion of healing within yourself by understanding the process of grieving, about relationships. One that I created many years ago, um, we now call it Authentic Living. I first planned it under the title of learning to be authentic, learning to be who we really are and understand what it is that prevents us from showing our true selves, understanding the masks that we wear. So understanding these things coupled with mindfulness practice is what brings awareness for many people. In the last year, we've been teaching one that I love called Conscious Relationships. That workshop's amazing fun. What is it about? Well, it's for couples and for single people. It's for anyone who wants to really grow a relationship with themselves. Because we start talking about how for us to become conscious and aware, we need to understand that the primary relationship is me with me. And when I can open to myself that way, then I can open to a partner. So we talk about becoming um aware of what being conscious means. And then over a course of a month meeting each week, we come up with different topics. Um, We talk about, of course, conscious connections, conscious communication with each other. It's really, really important that we do that. And we learn the basics of how you hold a space, both for yourself and for another person. And we learn how to practice being vulnerable. 
so with each other. If you come to this workshop as a couple, then you do the work together because a great deal of the work is one-to-one talking. Here, here are some questions I want you to ask each other and then, then you sit in and work with those. And like I said, nothing is new. So a lot of the deeper work we do comes from some of the greatest teachers in the world. Some of the teachers, John Wellwood, for instance, is a teacher I've followed for many years, and he does some wonderful work with couples. Um, he's a psychotherapist in the States. And he poses this, lots of really lovely questions. So we use those as a basis for talking. We learn not how to talk but actually how to hear. So conscious hearing and listening is probably the most important part. But people tell me it quite changes their lives. Couples come back and talk about how they've learned how to open to each other and how to, how to be vulnerable. Based on a book called Undefended Love. We also run uh, the workshops called Practicing Presence, as I said and teach an in-depth meditation. So these are all mindfulness-based workshops. And I think this kind of appeals to anyone and everyone. Everybody. So there was someone from every different culture and country in the world there. And how would you define, because you mentioned conscious communication, just so the listeners and myself are clear, and how, how would you define the conscious part of that? Well, the conscious is another word for awareness. Okay. So it's, again, it's presence. It's the practicing of being here. So we can't have any distractions. We're, we're saying to someone, I'm willing to have a conversation with you. You're willing to listen to me. Will you be here and, and conscious? It's not only about eye contact. It's about the, the depth of presence in the moment. And then we give them questions to help them to do that. And you learn how to hold an open space for someone and encouraging them as if you're holding a big empty bowl in front of you, that you can pour what you want to say about this into the bowl and it's safe with me. So we have to make that connection first with each other. We send couples off. They could be a couple couple or just two people Mm. met that night. We send them off in different parts around the building to quietly go through these questions. You could be half an hour or more away doing that piece of work. Then you come back together as a group and talk about your experience of that. And then off we go again to explore something deeper. And the conscious part of it is centered in mindfulness practice. So if consciousness means bringing the whole of you into this experience right now, it feels quite different for people. There are no phones. There's nothing to look at. We don't even give you anything to take away to read. Just be here. And for many people, that's their first experience of that. Such a gift when you can say, I feel loved by you because I feel heard. Mm. I feel heard by you. Therefore, I feel love for me. Does that make sense? Yeah, because uh, I think often in relationships, whether it's uh, boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, whether it's mother, daughter, um, or just friends, I think presence is often lacking. And again, I go back to today's day and age with with all our distractions. And you know, you go to a, to a dinner with your friends and... 90% of them are on their phones. Yeah. So I think it's, it's, this is something that a lot of people could benefit from, including myself. I think, I mean, I would love to try it. Um, 
I would love to give that a go. Oh, we'd as love well. you to come. No, absolutely. I, I definitely will. And I encourage all the listeners out there as well to um to to kind of find the workshop at Mindful Me that really works for them and to uh, so all around the world show. there are people teaching these magnificent things. I, I think it's so important that that we learn actually to see ourselves. And and I recognize this nowadays. People use their phones as the greatest distraction. They stay in their minds rather than sitting down into their bodies, into their hearts. Because many of us are very frightened of feeling what we feel. Mm. And and I think that the phones, I mean, we just don't have to go there. I actually, that's so funny you mentioned that because I, I, we talked about this in a previous episode where um, there was an experiment where people had the choice of sitting by themselves for 30 minutes in silence or undergo, I think it was a small implication of pain, like it was a pinch or some sort. And the 60% or 70% chose that option and the majority were men, Um, which shows that a lot of people are very uncomfortable being by themselves, Mm -hmm. especially when it's in silence. Mm -hmm. Because I think when you're alone by yourself, you, you could potentially still have a lot of distractions, which could be your phone, it could be a TV, it could be music or any of those things. But sitting by yourself without any of those distractions or sitting with someone else and having a conversation without any distractions, I think is often something that's uncomfortable. But It's interesting that a lot of people don't even understand why. So what, what happens when you sit alone? You know, what, what does it open to if there are no distractions? Yeah, you confront your thoughts. And, and your feelings, your griefs, all of the untended emotions which you've pushed down. And a lot of people have no idea that that's what they're frightened of. I often think when I'm having conversations with people, I can see and feel the ungrieved grief inside of them. It's absolutely palpable. And they, all they're wanting to do is struggle away from it. So sad. Like we constantly try to avoid all the things that we're creating with our thinking. But I, And I guess what you're saying then is that one of the best ways to confront this or to, uh, to bring up these suppressed feelings or whatever it might be, is by sitting alone quietly. Or sitting with another in trust and, mm. and, and knowing that they'll hold us. And being vulnerable. So one of the things that we also do as Mindful Me is, is run retreats. Okay. Uh, different sorts. People say, oh, a retreat, will there be spa and massage? <laughs> and no, no. What we have is some teachings. We usually pick a topic, um, we talk to that topic, but we suggest that we have different kinds of... Let, let me talk about um, a weekend retreat. We meet together and have dinner and, and start on the topic in the evening. This all takes place here in Dubai. It takes place here in Dubai. And then we have a meditation practice together and we wake early in the morning and we meditate again for half an hour and then we do a lovely yoga session, a gentle yoga. We've got some wonderful teachers here. And then we have breakfast. And then we spend the morning in a workshop together. And we will be undoing more deeply a, a topic that will help us to open to ourselves. And then we have uh, a session often where we learn how to do spontaneous writing, uh, journaling things, so that we can learn how to get our thoughts down, out and onto paper, we will have spoken to people about quite deep things in the morning. And then we stop and have lunch in total silence. 
So we apply our attention mindfully to our food and not to each other. And then we spend the afternoon until five o'clock in complete silence. So people can wander around. We provide lots of different things that you can do. We have some quite interesting art-type supplies. So we suggest that people create things. If you can't bear to just be still, we have books that people can read. We take their telephones away from them and they can't have access to them at all. And we suggest that they don't leave the building. So they're in a fairly confined kind of space. And then we make sure that people from our team are present to help them mindfully if they need it. And people thrive on the silence. It's often the first time that they've been able to be alone with themselves. And I'm pretty sure that we help them uh, by suggesting in our topic what to focus on more. We don't just leave them empty. You guide them. We guide them. And then we finish in the afternoon with some kind of mindful movement. Um, We use it as a surprise. We have dinner together where we now talk. And then we'd have some more time during the evening to feed back over our day, grow a bit more depth, meditate again, off to bed. And we begin the next day with meditation practice. So if people have never meditated, they're learning how by now. We're teaching the whole time, being with them. More yoga, deepen the workshop experience again, and then spend another whole silent lunch and all afternoon in silence. Break the silence around about four o'clock in the afternoon using all sorts of different techniques and we do interesting things and then talk about how we're going to prepare ourselves for going home again. So for many people, that's a totally different retreat experience. A lot of growth comes from it. A lot of attachment to each other and deep friendships grow and huge support systems and networks. Throughout the year, we also do this as a day retreat, including the silence portion. Um, on a Saturday, usually from nine to five. That must be quite popular as well. It's lovely fun. I spent some time in silence last year um, at a Buddhist monastery in Nepal, actually, for about 10 days. And the big difference, I I think, between that and between what you're mentioning, so I obviously spent 24 hours a day in silence. And one of my biggest struggles was not necessarily being able to speak for the sake of speaking, but being able to share what I was learning and all the mental breakthroughs I was having. And mm. funnily enough, you know, we, we did have our journal, so we were able to write everything down and I must have written 70 pages mm. back back to front. Mm. But I think what, what, what you do at Mindful Me is you break the silence and you allow this discussion, which I'm sure sparks some really interesting sort of uh, topics and breakthroughs as well. I think it's really important here in particular because people are so distracted and so busy that for many of the people who come, it's their very first experience of being silent. And it feels important to me that everyone feels well held. So interestingly enough, about a year ago now, I think, I asked people who'd come on several retreats already, what would you like more of? And they all said more silence. Could we have silence for longer? So we had a weekend retreat where we did 24 hours of silence. It's very hard to break silence. You know that you've had that experience. When you haven't spoken for a while, you don't want to. Mm. And, And you feel quite deep inside of yourself and want to nurture that and stay there. 
So we're very careful in the timing around that and what we do with it. But after that retreat, most of the people there asked if we could do it again and for longer. Yeah. So my great joy, he would be able to do week-long retreats that had a lot of silence in them. And to, um, in our Mindful Me community, people understand what we mean. But in the, a lot of the greater market in Dubai, people are yearning for more stimulation and entertainment. And if we go on a retreat, it means something to do. You know, I'll retreat away from my busy life into a busy something. So we have to gently help people to undo from that. You mentioned journaling as well. Um, is this something that you practice as well in your in your days? Mm-hmm. And I think what I'm really curious about is um, how much time would you spend on something like this? Or is it just something that's open? And what are the real benefits behind it, uh, personally speaking as well? well we teach it. Um, in our mindfulness workshop as a mindfulness practice. Okay. So I know many people who use journaling as a mindfulness practice. What they're doing is each day after some seated practice of silence and breathing, for instance, they'll pick up their journal and just do what we call spontaneous writing. You just begin to write. Uh, you might write, oh my goodness, I have no idea what I'm going to write about. <laughs> but once you start to write, it spills. Um, you, your mind and, and your heart connect together down onto the page. You might pose a question to yourself. You might pick a topic. But for many people, they write about their intentions or their learnings or their insights. They begin by writing gratitudes. A common practice is um, I'm going to do what's called three pages. Every day I'm just going to write three pages. Keep on writing until I've finished three pages. And for others, it may be that you write specifically about um, new insights that you're having, for instance, or what it is you would love to pay attention to more. Journaling is, is an astonishing skill. It, it really is a wonderful thing to learn how to do. And for many years, it's been um, from time to time much more a part of my practice. As part of training that I've done over the years, I've, had, I've been required to keep a journal and then hand it in. But I find it helps me to really see more deeply the connection between um, what I would prefer to bury. So it helps me to open um, to difficult, unpleasant thoughts and emotions, and that's particularly what I use it for. Okay. I live alone. So... I think about my journal as my partner. Mm. Um, I ask myself the question that I understand someone who really cared about me and wanted my growth would put to me. That's a beautiful way of putting it. We have now spoken about quite a few amazing tools that our listeners can implement. And I think these tools are also very valuable when it comes to um, kind of finding your purpose and finding your why. And I really want to touch on that because I think I struggle with it. My friends, my circle, a lot of people I know um, are in a rush to find why they're on this earth and what their purpose is. What kind of advice would you have for them in terms of how to be on that path to finding out why you're here? But you know, I have this deep 
sense that everybody's purpose is to be truly who they are, to, to do the inner work, to focus on releasing all the ego identities, all the, the masks, all the presentations I give to the world to become more true, more real, more here, more alive. So I think that it comes in two forms. That's the practice of being. And we learn how to do our practice of being by what it is that we're doing. So it's a great gift if you're doing and being match, isn't it? 100%. If, so my life is like that. What I'm doing all the time is my practice of being. And it's been like that for a long time now. But for many people, they have to do a job and learn how to find their being within that. So the notion of sitting each morning long enough to grow deeper each day into a, a more extended practice, to cultivate times of silence or solitude if you're able to, like set up your own little mini retreat, even if it be only for two hours on a day off, for instance. And to use journaling or community groups or other ways of going about things to help people to identify your truth, your purpose and meaning for being is to be you. And you use your doing in order to create that being. Mm. And many people have to do things that for them feel there's no beingness in that at all. But I would think that my greatest moments of opening to myself have been doing things I simply loathe, right? Yeah. Learning, learning how to grow tolerance and to grow steadfastness, all these lovely old-fashioned words, um, tenacity, self-discipline. So if we all chose the things that make us feel great, I remember years ago telling my husband that what I liked doing most of all was working with teenagers. And he said, well, I would like you to work with older people. And I said, why? I don't know anything about old people. In fact, I don't even like spending time with old people. I work really well with teenagers. It was part of my training and I loved it. And he said, you can't be king of the kids forever, you know, and it won't grow a whole you if you only ever do what it is you love and you think you're good at. So grow some tenacity, some steadfastness, some perseverance and patience by doing something you don't like on a regular basis. And that really helped me to find meaning, self, purpose, and to grow in beingness more than you can possibly imagine. I argued with him about it, mm -hmm. and I think he was right. So I think building some very powerful daily habits um, and rituals, as well as essentially stepping out of your comfort zone and doing something that's not necessarily uh, a part of your daily routine or something that you could essentially do easily is kind of your way of really becoming your true and authentic self. Well, when I think of um, Carl Jung's shadow work, for instance, how can we learn to see and find, um, accept, and ultimately 
love the parts of ourselves that we never explore, that we're always trying to get rid of, mm. um, change. People often talk to me about self-improvement. I think, no, we don't need to improve ourselves. We need to learn how to be ourselves. We don't need um, to turn ourselves into something else. We need to, first of all, find who we truly are and practice that. You know, being ourselves is far more important than, than going on a search and a journey to try to improve or create something that we're not. So coming home to yourself, essentially, is our life purpose, which will then bring with it all of the other gifts and skills that, that we, we learn along the way. How will we ever learn to embrace our whole self if we don't put ourselves into difficult situations? Absolutely. I think that's how you really get to know yourself. Absolutely, it is. Um, I want to move to a segment that we called Asking for a Friend. And um, the reason that we have this segment is basically, I don't know if you remember when you were in school or in a classroom or whatever it is, there were always questions that you felt like asking, but you didn't because maybe you were a little bit embarrassed about it. So, so this is, these are from our listeners or from our friends or from our family. And uh, the first question is, what's the best advice that was ever given to you? I love that question. Okay. So the best piece of advice that was ever given to me that I use still. Um, well, there, there are two. One dovetails into the other. My mother's words to me when I was young, Shakespeare, to thine own self be true. Because the second part of that is, and then it stands, thou canst not but be true to every man. Mm. Be true to yourself first. What that led to for me was this astonishing piece of Buddhist quote, which I love more than anything. It says this, Each day set an intention that you will live into your highest best rather than setting a goal. Because a goal makes you choose only what you know in your mind and pushes you down that path. But an intention that you could be your highest best, set that instead. And then completely let go your attachment to any outcome and instead open to the vast field of possibilities that exists way outside anything that you ever dreamed up. And then your life has the ability to expand, explode often. So don't go setting a goal. Instead, set an intention and then let go your attachment to the outcome and allow the field of possibilities that exists far beyond your imagination. That would be my quote. That is beautiful. I love it. We're going to write that one down after the show. That, I mean, it's basically saying that goals could potentially limit you, but an intention is limitless. Wow. I, I really love like, that. I you? really like that one as well. I'm a big quote fan, by the way. Uh, so I'm definitely going to use that. Um, another question we had was, what are your biggest daily struggles and how do you deal with them? So what do I struggle with? Yeah. I would say that the, the thing that I struggle with the most is, is man's inhumanity to man on a regular basis. 
I'm, I'm, I'm often surprised how in my lifetime it feels as if more um, duality has arrived, that, that people are either worse or more wonderful than they used to be mm-hmm. in their choices. Do you understand what I mean yeah. by that? I'm quite often surprised at how much suffering there is in the form of cruelty that we choose. So I I struggle at times um, to choose not to be a part of that and not to have an awareness around it. And I live in what I would call almost a cloistered kind of a life because of that. I spend a lot of time with people um, and, and with growth. My biggest struggle would be um, enough time to play, mm. and and I know that I need to to play, to have much more fun, um, and to exercise. I'm often sitting still with people, and because I'm choosing not to have a lot to do with the difficult sides of people's choices, I'm usually surrounded with people making good choices for themselves, and I love that. My biggest struggle of all is enough playtime, and yet I teach it often to people, the importance of it. So on my day, if I ever get a day off, a good day off, I play as much as I can. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. Um, I want to move to anxiety. Yeah. And uh, and speak a little bit about that. I think these are the last two questions for today. I've witnessed a lot of anxiety in the people around me. And I know it's something that's very present um, in our city, but I think in a lot of cities around the world. The first question is, how do you tell the difference between anxiety and feelings of anxiety or feeling anxious, if that makes sense? I'm always curious about when people say, I have anxiety. Um, medically, people call it a disorder. Um, I don't be doing that. I just think that anxiety is a collection of a pile of feelings that all arrive, that are usually um, a part of our autonomic nervous system, fight and flight. And the common anxieties are fear and worrying and self-abandonment. You know, self-hatred, I think self-loathing when you think about it. So I became aware of um, an interesting teacher called Michael Brown who wrote a a great book about practicing presence. And he uses the English language in absolutely amazing ways. I love what he does with words. He says, if you take the word anxiety, write it down, and then underneath anxiety, write this, any exit. They're the same letters as the word anxiety any exit. And he says this, anxiety when it becomes, when it arrives in us and we become aware of it, we usually would take any exit to escape from it. Mm. So we try immediately to leave ourselves. If instead we thought about it like this, close off all the exits, sit really still and breathe into what is happening and allow what you discover is your mind is full of fearful thoughts, and has gone either into the future or into the past. If you were present, really here right now, you'd mostly discover nothing much is happening. And there's a great truth to that. Eckhart Tolle teaches that too, when you think about it. But I love Michael Brown's 
any exit. Mostly what we're doing is avoiding ourselves all the time. Instead of paying attention to anxiety as a signboard that's showing us, look at this, look at you, be present here now, bring your thoughts back from what you wish you hadn't done or should have done. Bring your thoughts back from, oh, I know it's going to happen, it's going to be gloomy and bad and awful and I'm frightened. And you would discover the more you are able to be here and breathe, the more you would see that anxiety is a thinking disorder. Wow. Which actually makes you feel terrible. What comes first, the chicken or the egg here? Your thinking creates your feelings. So if you could learn to mindfully be aware of your thinking, you'd realize anxiety, worrying, depressing is thinking. I don't do anxiety very much. But the thing I get the most anxious about here is getting lost. <laughs> As you kind of did today. <laughs> it really is. Yeah. I think the, the last question relating to that is, as a friend of a person who has anxiety, what kind of advice would you give to that person to, um, to help or to guide them through whatever it is they're going through? I would, I would say to them, I would love to give you plenty of time, a really safe and loving open space and ask you, talk to me. Tell me, let's, let's explore together all the thoughts that are anxietying you, mm. all the thoughts that are about worrying. Let's put them all into a great big bowl. I, I teach it often by saying, you know, thoughts, you know, a bit like taxis in Dubai. They go round and round and round waiting for you to wave them down and get in. Well, thoughts are a bit like a taxi has arrived called anxiety. You get into the taxi and, and off you go into that anxiety thought and you could end up in Abu Dhabi when you were just wanting to go to the Mall of Emirates because you get caught up in it. So if you ask someone, let me give you the time and space. Tell me, show me what's happening here. And as you lay it out and begin to talk about it, really give them the time to talk about it, you begin to discover that they'll tell you stories about what they think might happen or stories about what has already happened. And you can help them to say, right now, if you teach your body how to settle, how to be calmer, how to learn how to breathe into the present moment, you'll discover your anxiety will drop hugely. First of all, let them unload it, and then help them to see how they can sit in a much more open space, and there will be less. I say this because the vast majority of people who come to learn mindfulness tell me, I've come because I'm really anxious. Mm. Then everyone else says me too. And at the end of some weeks of mindfulness, they'll say anxiety has dropped away by such a long way because I'm now learning to see what I'm thinking. Wow. Makes sense? 100%. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so before I say goodbye to you, I would just like to ask where can people find out more about um, Mindful Me, um, about yourself, and how can people get in touch? Well, you'll love it when I say screens. Yeah, of course, how <laughs> else? <laughs> Social media. Okay. So um, Mindful Me Dubai on Instagram, um, same on Facebook. But we have a website, which is literally 
mindfulme is one word, dot M-E. Okay, perfect. So Helen, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been such an amazing experience listening to you and I'm sure our listeners will feel the same way. So everyone, if you want to learn more about Helen or reach out to her and her team, go to mindfulme.me and you can always get in touch with us for any questions you have at all. Um, thank you so much for, for being here. Thank you very much. It's I've been, thoroughly enjoyed it. It's actually been a super amazing conversation. Um, and thank you everyone else for being with us today and have a great rest of the week. At the end of each episode, we want to give you some key takeaways and some next steps to become the best you. So let's get started and see what we learned from the amazing Helen today. First, that most people look into the future, some look into the past, but very little are present. So how can we improve that presence? Keep silent for a minute. Breathe in and out through your nose. Listen to all sounds, the AC, construction, birds, people, elevator, and count them. What number did you get? Because all your concentration was focused on this task, you stop paying attention to everything else. And it's something very simple to start with in order to be more present. Give it a shot. Second, try spontaneous writing. Let your thoughts spill and let your mind and heart connect on paper. A common practice, write three pages. Keep writing until you finish three complete pages. Write about new insights or what or who you would love to pay attention to. It's an amazing and powerful tool that carries incredible benefits that helps you see more deeply. So give it a go. Thirdly, know that thoughts can hurt you. Become aware of your thoughts and have the ability to analyze them. That's your first step to self-love. Accept your thoughts. Don't try to get rid of them. Don't judge them and be kind to yourself. Spend time by yourself or with another, but do so quietly, peacefully, and in full presence. Do this frequently to deepen your practice. This will allow you to not avoid your thoughts, but to confront them head on. And the last one is about purpose. Your purpose is to be truly who you are. Do your inner work, release your ego, and become your authentic self. What you need to do is build powerful daily habits and rituals and grow tolerance and perseverance. Step out of your comfort zone to encourage growth. This is your best way to coming home to yourself. This is the best possible way to finding your purpose. Thank you so much for listening to this week's Forever Student episode. This show is for you, me, and all of us to learn and grow from. If you enjoyed this, please rate the podcast, comment and share with anyone that you believe would benefit from listening to this. I'd love to hear from you, so feel free to reach out to me at Forever Student Show across all social media platforms. Or you can drop us an email at foreverstudent at dukanmedia.com. My name is Stefan Miller, and this podcast is brought to you by Dukan Media. Thank you all, and have a great week. 